this morning looking at verses 1 through 6, but for the sake of context, let me read the whole passage. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness in all things. We thank you, Father, as we sung much this morning, that the suffering of your people is not something you are unaware of, not something that is fruitless, but something that displays your enduring faithfulness. We thank you that our suffering is not the suffering that has saved us, but the suffering of Christ. We thank you, as Paul proclaims for the mystery of the gospel, that it would not be those <coughs> who are the people of Israel only, but all who set their faith in you, all who according to your great plan and purpose to be holy and blameless before you, are holy and blameless before you by the blood of your Son, by the grace of the gospel. We thank you for your grace, Father. We pray that you would work abundantly this morning through your word, by your spirit in the hearts of your people, uh, for their purity, that they might be what you have promised they will become. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we start chapter 3 this morning, uh, I, I want to remind you of this little phrase, for this reason. Maybe you remember that if you look at chapter 2, verse, rather chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He begins a prayer, and here in verse 3, we see him start to do that. He says, for this reason, for what reason? Well, verse 21, everything prior, but verse 21, in whom Christ, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God 
So he finished speaking of the church that is being built together as a holy place for God. Remember, joined together, united in such a way that though they are distinct, they together are one in the magnification, the glory of God. And they are not just stuck together. So it sounds so bad when you say it that way. But they are growing together to proclaim Christ. And Paul says, for this reason, because God ordained before time that the church would be joined and united and growing in Christ, for this reason, and he's about to start writing his prayer for them. He's going to again pray for them. Notice in, in chapter 1, when he says their salvation has come, he immediately talks about how he prays for them. And at the end of chapter 2, as he proclaims the work as God, God is going to do, he immediately then is going to pray for them, but he stops. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf, or on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there should start what actually starts in verse 14. If you look down at verse 14 in your Bible, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But why does Paul stop? He, he begins to say this very thing. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, on behalf of you Gentiles. Eh, hold on. I'm not going to pray quite yet. Why? Well, because what he prays for us, or for the Ephesians, and is same for us, in verse 14, comes on the knowledge of the truth. And so he pauses. Paul says, for this reason, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, wait assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Before he starts to pray for them, he wants them to have knowledge that they might apply his prayer properly. That they might know and understand that they might live as he prays for them. He will pray for their knowledge, for their growth, for their strength to comprehend, that they would understand all things. But he stops to say, wait, before I pray for that, let me reiterate again the reality of all things. And so he stops and says, assuming you have heard. So as we look for the, at these first six verses, I want you to see the things Paul wants them to assume they've heard. Number one, Paul's stewardship of God's grace. That they have heard of Paul's stewardship of God's grace. Second, Paul's insight into the mystery of Christ. And lastly, our, or their, the church's unity and participation in the mystery revealed. The mystery revealed being the gospel. And so what is so important that Paul says prayer can wait, right? Often we feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. Prayer can't wait. We always have this burden of prayer. And that is right. Right? We don't see him face to face. Though we love him, we don't see him face to face. I don't think Christians on earth should ever feel like, we've prayed enough, we're done. We don't need to commune or communicate with God anymore. Never. But prayer is not just the expression of our feelings. It is rooted in the knowledge of God and communicating to him. And as Paul prays, he's crying out that God would accomplish what he's willed. And so Paul stops before he prays and reemphasizes much of what he's already said. But he stops. And the first thing he stops to say is to remind them of his stewardship of God's grace. His stewardship of God's grace. 
Paul's stewardship. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul's stewardship. So first we have to think about this word stewardship. It's not one we use a lot, right? I don't know if you guys say that often. You tell your kids, you are a steward of the things you own. You have a stewardship given by God. Take care of your Legos. Keep them off the floor. If I step on them, I will throw them away. You like them, take care of them. No, we say, take care of your things. These are yours. And I will throw them away if I step on them because they're little beasts. But you don't use the word stewardship, but that's exactly what it's talking about. It's you've been entrusted with things and you care for them. You're a manager of things. It is a reference to an ancient manager of a household, right? I often say Lorna is my chief of staff. I should start saying she is the steward of our home in some ways. She manages the day-to-day things. She manages things and takes care of things in a way. All men, all women, men are a steward of all God has given them in their household. Women share in that stewardship with their husband. Whether you're married or not, you have a stewardship before God. And Paul has a particular stewardship, a particular management that he has been assigned. But he starts by saying this by assuming. Paul pauses to ensure they understand this truth. He pauses preparing to communicate again what he wants to pray for them, but what he's already communicated. He, inter- he stops to intersect some knowledge, some wisdom before he prays for them. And the first thing is, remember my stewardship. Remember the management God has entrusted me with. Notice who that management is for. It is a management of God's things. What are God's things? Look at verse 1 again. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He is a manager of God's things, but this benefit is not for God alone. He's responsible for God, but what is he managing? The people of God. He is a steward of the people of God in one sense. He is to care for these people He's to make known for for them the truth. And what is the truth to be made known? Verse 3, he says, How the mystery has been made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. I want to remind you again, Paul states here, what has he done? Written briefly. You should read the book of Ephesians on on a monthly basis. But you could read it on a daily basis. Why? Because on the authority of Scripture, it's brief. It's short. It's easy to read. That's what Paul just said. I've written to you briefly how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And so I want to take a minute to uh, remind you or maybe tell you for the first time of Paul's stewardship. What is this management Paul has? What is the revelation that Paul has been given? Because Paul says, assuming that you know. And I would preach this assuming that you would know also, right? Right? I assume many of you, as believers, you are aware of the calling and the testimony of Paul. And Paul assumes that the Ephesians know the calling and the testimony of Paul. But why does he stop to say, assuming that you know? Because there might very well be those among them who don't know. Those who are hearing for the first time this letter of Paul. 
and they're saying, remind me who this Paul is again? Why should we listen to this dude? Do we get letters from other people that we listen to? Why do we listen to Paul? He's saying, assuming that you know, he wants them to be reminded and aware that what has happened in Paul's life is not just normal Christian life. Paul's authority is not just normal Christian authority, right? If I get a letter from any of you, that letter, I'm not going to say, this is truth and must be followed just because you wrote it to me. By, by what authority does your letter matter to me? Well, my relational connection to you probably plays into that, right? If I really like you, respect you, I want your opinion, I'll read that letter. If I think you're dumb as mud, your letter's not going to mean as much to me, right? If you're right, <laughs> it's family service day. If I don't think you're that smart, then your letter probably won't mean as much to me. By what authority? And so Paul says, remember by what authority I write. Remember, this is not just normal Christian life. The writings of Paul are not just the writings of some Christian. The writings of Paul are the writings of an apostle of God. I'd encourage you to look at Acts 9. Acts 9 proclaims the testimony of Paul. How was Paul saved? Well, Paul was saved while he was marching to find Christians to kill them. Paul was saved because he had just recently stood while Stephen, the first martyr of the church, a man who was described as full of the Spirit and faithful in all ways, a man who at his death does not cry out curses to those who are killing him, but cries out the truth of God that they might hear and be saved. And Paul stands and watches and holds their robes as Stephen is killed by the hands of the Jews. And as Paul is marching to find other Christians and to let them have the same fate as Stephen, something miraculous happens. Christ appears to Paul, and Paul falls on the ground, and a voice is heard, and he says to him that he is going to be his chosen instrument. And then Paul is saved, which we'll get to in verse 20, or rather, Acts 26. Paul accounts this. He says his testimony. But in 9.15, the Lord says to a man, uh, Ananias, I believe is his name, that Paul is going to come to him. And he, and he argues with God in a, in a faithful way, not like a, you're wrong. He says, whoa, 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 wait a second. I just want to clarify. You're asking me to accept Saul of Tarsus into my home? Do you know what he's doing? He's marching to kill Christians. And you want me to accept him into my home? And this is what God says to Ananias. He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul accounts the same testimony in Acts 26 as he's being questioned. He says, and when we had fallen, when we had heard, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you 
for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, to, ch- to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people, from your people, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is a Jew so zealous that he's killing Christians because they are claiming a Jewish Messiah. And now Paul, who finds himself so clean as a Jew that he won't even be defiled by Jews who say the Messiah has come, now is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle to who in Paul's mind once were filthy. Who in Paul's mind once were detestable. An abomination before God. But Paul realizes the truth. By the grace of God and by a miraculous work of God, Paul, who was once a self-righteous Jew, now is a righteous Jew because of Christ. Paul, who is not the man who last week sought to protect the body, but the man who was coming to kill the body. Right? We prayed this morning for the church that was attacked. You realize the Apostle Paul is the attacker, not the Savior. Saul was the one marching into the church. The Gospel of God is not that his people are protected by the killing of their enemies, but that their enemies become friends. Their enemies are saved. And their enemies proclaim the goodness and the grace of God. It's why Paul will write later, he is not just a saint. He says, I am the least of the saints. Why does Paul have such humility? Because he is aware of the truth of his sin. Paul was a murderer of the church. And he was saved. Not through the killing of others but by the death of Christ, by the Messiah. And Paul saw this with his own eyes. He saw this revelation and what he was called to do with his own eyes. Paul's purpose and stewardship in life is is not like ours. The writings of Paul are not a lesson to be like Paul. There are times where he says, be like me as I seek to be like Christ. But your, your life is not like Paul's. As Paul writes of his suffering, many of you are suffering in great ways, but your suffering is nothing like Paul's. Paul has a stewardship that Christians can't imagine. We are all stewards of what God has given us, but his stewardship is miraculous. It is one of great suffering. You heard God tell it. He said, he will suffer much for my sake. Paul has a stewardship, and that stewardship is to make the gospel known. But that stewardship is miraculous in the person of Paul. Because he is not just well-educated and well-trained. He was an opposer of the gospel, a murderer of Christians. And everything he was was put to death that he might have life in Christ. And that stewardship of Paul to proclaim that truth came with great suffering. 
And I want to remind you how Paul speaks of that suffering. In Colossians 1, 24 and 26, which is in very many ways a parallel passage to what we're in this morning, as Paul thinks of his stewardship and the suffering that comes with that, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. Remember in Ephesians, Paul says, how the mystery was made known by revelation as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known as to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this stewardship Paul has? It is not just to suffer, right? God's message to Paul was not just, hey, you were killing Christians, so now I'm going to make you suffer forever. And we often treat our stewardship like that. We think, well, God's just punishing me for my previous sin. But why am I suffering so much? Well, it's because I've lived so horribly. No. No, Christian. No. Romans 8, as I was reminded this week, actually proclaims that we are more than conquerors in Christ, whether we be naked or poor or persecuted, because our hope is eternal. And I'm getting quite ahead of myself. Let me go back. His insight into the mystery of Christ is what he is proclaiming. The purpose that he is called is not just to suffer, but what did he say in Colossians? To make the word of God fully known. Paul's suffering was not his punishment for his sin. It was a proclamation to the world. And Paul's insight did not just come by supernatural revelation. Paul's particular insight came by revelation the Holy Spirit revealing. It says this is a mystery that was not revealed at previous times. But how did this mystery become known to him and what was the purpose? Well, let me clarify for you. The mystery is the gospel, that the Gentiles would be saved, that the Messiah would come not to free the righteous people of Israel, but to save the unrighteous of both Israel and all people who would surrender to him, surrender to God who are paid for by Christ, who put their trust in him. But Paul says, you can perceive my particular insight. Why does Paul have such insight? Unlike the other apostles, Paul wasn't a fisherman. He wasn't a tax collector. Paul was a Pharisee. He was the Jew of Jews. He knew the word of God. Paul was raised and taught in the Word of God. He, he knew it so well. Every word. He was self-righteous by the Word of God. He knew it so well he would twist it to his own advantage like all men do with the Word. He would take the Word and proclaim his own self-righteousness. But he was blind as all men were in previous generations to how God would save his people not in their righteousness, but in the righteousness of the Messiah. He had blaring gaps, or as Romans says, that there was a veil over his eyes that they could not see the reality that the Messiah would come and save his people. That their great need was for the 
justification of their sin and that he would provide that. But Paul had great insight because of his previous knowledge, but also his great insight was by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God revealed to him. The Spirit of God made known to him in ways it had not in other generations. You can see that in Ephesians. He says that by the Spirit of God, the apostles and prophets. Why is this so important, Paul's insight? It is not just that Paul was well-educated. It is not just that he has a miraculous testimony. But it is that he was called to do this to make the Word of God more fully known. He, He is an apostle. So when he writes to the Ephesians... He is not writing based just on good advice of a well-informed Christian. You would do well to listen to the advice of well-informed Christians. But Paul is writing as an apostle, a messenger of God. And you might think, of course he is, all men do this. They want to be messengers of God so they can get others to follow them and have money and power. Lauren started following an Instagram account lately. It's called Prophets and Watches. And the guy posts pastors and their watches and how much they cost. And it is terrifying to see. He recently posted about a man who he described his watch as a 2020 Crayola, not Crayola, oh, I wish, Corolla. Because it cost as much as a 2020 Corolla. 21000 And it is one of the cheaper of those that are posted. Many men will seek to be a prophet of God so they can buy a watch that costs more than your car. Many men will seek and claim to be a prophet of God because they want money and wealth and influence. And Paul, until his dying day, proclaimed to be an apostle of God, and what did it get him? Suffering, imprisonment, shipwrecks, beating at both the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles. No fame, no fortune. He died as an enemy of Rome and an enemy of the Jews. He died as a man who was proclaimed as foolish and lost. They had no gain, just like the other apostles. They're not men who made great claims and great religion and had great followers and many wives and much money. They're men who hung on crosses and were cut in half and were stoned until they were dead. They did not become apostles for the glory of man. They were not made apostles to hold the great glories of earth. They were apostles who suffered like Christ. And when Paul says that I and my stewardship suffer for your sake, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, we hear that and we say, wait, nothing is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. No, nothing for salvation. Christ has completely saved us. Paul is not filling our salvation. What is he filling? Our knowledge. He is living to make the Word of God more fully known. 
the afflictions of Christ do not proclaim the whole gospel. Paul told, or rather Christ told his apostles, the Spirit will come and you will remember the things I taught you. And you will proclaim them and the nations will know. So often we are so concerned about our own stewardship, our own experiences with God, our own revelation, our own knowledge, our own understanding, because we are concerned about what it will gain us. And these men were overwhelmed with the knowledge of God and willing to die and forever have proclaimed the truth of the gospel for us by the work of God. His holy prophets and apostles proclaim not in glory and fame, but as Paul writes in Corinthians, that we forever carry the death of Christ in our bodies. That we are a fragrance of death to those who live and a fragrance of life to those who die and find Christ. And Paul assumes you know this testimony. He assumes, but he's not willing to just go off of his assumption. He wants to remind you and make sure you know this is the Paul who is writing to you. This is the God who has saved you. This is the mystery that was made known. And this is his insight to it. When we get to heaven, I think we will all be so overwhelmed to see Christ face to face, we might forget about Paul for a few hundred years. Maybe thousands. But I think there will come a point where we say, Paul, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for suffering for the sake of Christ. Thank you for being willing to die and to have pain and persecution. Paul, my Christian life was prosperous. I never knew famine or nakedness. I never knew persecution like you knew. But my hope endured because of the grace of God through you. Thank you. And I assume he will say, not I, but Christ in me. Paul was a man, just a man, but worked mightily under a hard stewardship from God by the grace that God provides. Paul proclaims that. How could he go through such suffering? I can't see my notes. Well, Paul claims that we, like him, participate in this mystery. So let's move on. Our unity and participation in the mystery revealed. Paul is not writing this just so that the apostles and the prophets would know. If you remember from Colossians, he says, his stewardship is that the word of God may be fully known and that it may be revealed. And in Colossians, he doesn't say what he says in Ephesians. In Ephesians, he says that it has been revealed to who? His holy prophets and apostles by the Spirit. In Colossians, he says that's made known to the saints, all believers. As it is made known to the prophets and the apostles, it's not kept for them. It is made known to the saints. This mystery is no longer a mystery. It's not proclaimed as a mystery. This is not about the mysterious things you don't know of God. Those things exist. There are secrets God keeps from you. They're not your business. There is. He's eternal. You can't handle God. 
You can say the truth. It's the same thing. He is the truth. He is beyond anything you can imagine or behold. But He has made known some mysteries to you. And the Gospel is one. It's not just for the holy prophets and apostles. It's not something kept from the people. It is given to them for the people. His stewardship is of God, but it is for you. His stewardship is to proclaim the truth. And so he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Fellow heirs. Three things are described here of what this mystery does to you. This mystery is not just for the exaltation of Paul. It is for the sake of God's people. This mystery reveals that the Gentiles, you, who the Messiah was never thought to come for, was planned for, for eternity past, that you might be saved. And in your salvation, what becomes of you? Number one, you are an heir. You are an heir. You are an inheritor. You are one who awaits an inheritance. Paul has already proclaimed this. But this changes life. Paul did, he, it said he rejoiced in his suffering. How can you rejoice in suffering? How could you be like us in the little suffering that we feel compared to Paul and find joy? Let alone be like Paul and go through the suffering he did and find joy. When you feel like, I cannot take what God has handed me. I can't do this. Paul proclaims truth to us to help. In Romans 8, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, The sufferings of now are nothing They are a drop in the bucket. They are a flash in the pan compared to the glory that awaits us. As I was speaking to one of my daughters about this and saying, how do we get through suffering? I showed her these verses. She was struggling to understand how they helped. And I said, when you go to the doctor and you have to get a shot, why do you do it? (laughs) And she said, so I can get a donut. (laughs) Because Honey Donuts is right next door. And if I don't scream and I don't fight, I can go get a donut right after. Because the weight of glory, maybe you've never had a honey donut. Maybe you don't know. The weight of glory is nothing compared to the temporary sting of the shot. Right? The value is so incredibly different. Whoa, 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 whoa. All I have to do is a prick of that needle... And I can have a free donut? My parents will provide that for me? That is nothing compared. Christian, if a child can see such truth with a shot and a donut, can we not see such truth with an eternity where there is no tears, and no sin, no pain, no agony, no mental frustration of I don't know how to live rightly? No question of where I stand before God because I will always stand before God. This temporary suffering does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. Paul says in Corinthians that though we are perishing, 
we do not lose heart. For though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, I want to remind you what Paul calls light momentary affliction. Shipwrecks. Being beaten with sticks on his back until the point where he has assumed if we hit him one more time, he would die. Being drugged out of a city. And having every man in that city or every man who drug you out pick up a rock and throw it upon you until they assume you are dead. Being kicked out of cities, being thrown into prisons, lacking food, lacking wealth, lacking clothing. And Paul says this, light, momentary affliction is nothing, is nothing. And it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How? Because we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Christian, why do we suffer so long? Because we stare so long at our temporary suffering. That's what Paul says. He says, we do not look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen. How does Paul get through the thorn in his side? He prays to God and he stops dwelling on the thorn in his side. He looks at the things that are unseen. He looks at the hope of eternal things. I know this is not easy. I am not speaking to you individually. Individually, I would have far more personal grace and compassion. I know many of you are suffering in ways I can't imagine. But by the authority of God, He says, if you dwell on your temporary suffering, you are dwelling in the wrong place. How do those who suffer so much as Christians continue and endure in faithfulness? Because they are heirs to the kingdom. They inherit all things. They are more than conquerors in Christ. And their conquering is not in this life. It is in the next. It is not the nakedness and famine and peril and sword and persecution of this life that they live for. It is for eternity before God. We are heirs. And then he says, we are members of the same body. We are members of the same body. Not only are we heirs, but we are members of the same body. Christian, your attachment to Christ is just like Paul's. Your calling in Christ is not like Paul's. Some of you have miraculous ways in which God has called you. And some of you, you, you fail to see the miraculousness of your calling because the miracle was all internal. It was dramatic heart change. It is still miraculous. It is, I think, in many ways more miraculous for someone who has assumed they were righteous their whole life to incredibly be broken and see, I'm at loss without Christ. Your calling is not like His. But what you are called to is the same. You are members of the body of Christ. Each a member. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, I warned you we were going to get there, but it was going to be a long time. 
1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, we see a discussion on the Corinthians' abuse of spiritual gifts. And God is correcting it. By the hand of Paul and the words of Paul, he is caring for and purifying that church. And as he is doing that, in chapter 12, Paul uses an illustration to communicate the necessary unity of the body. As you are familiar with, in 1 Corinthians 11, as we see in communion, there was much division in the body of Corinth. And Paul proclaims, in chapter 12, an illustration to help them. He compares the body, the church, to a body. In verse 15, he says that if the foot assumes it does not belong to the body because it's not a hand, it is no less part of the body, right? If you could talk to your foot and your foot goes, look, I'm not useful. Look at your hands. Look how they grab fruit and peel bananas. I can't do that. Or if your foot goes, look, I saw the YouTube video you were watching of the guy with no hands and he was peeling bananas with his feet. Let me do that for you. Let me be useful. What do you tell your foot? Foot, you are a foot. Please help me to walk. Stop trying to be a hand. You are no less part of my body because you are a foot. And that's what Paul says. He says, if the ear should say in verse 16 that I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye. He says the ear would be wrong. He would say to the ear, wait, if we were all eyes, where would the hearing be? Where would the smelling be? You can't, you can't all be the same part of the body or there's not a body. And you are magnifying other people's function in the body and denying the truth that you have a function in the body. Function. He says in verse 19 through 25 that God has arranged the body as he desires in verse 18. Think about that. The arrangement of the body is by the choice of God. You think, I come here and I don't know why I'm here. Let me answer for you. God has chosen to you to be here, to function. He has a desire for you to function in the body. He has arranged the body as he desires. He did so in wisdom. All parts of the body are necessary. And God has chosen to give honor to parts of the body, even honor to those who are weak and less honorable in the eyes of others. He says the body is not as we think of the body, that there are parts of the body that must be covered and hidden and require modesty, Right? He says, no, God has given greater honor to those that we would assume are modest and unnecessary. He says, every part of the body in God is given honor and functions. And so, that there would be unity in the body. And so, his conclusion in verse 26 is, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored all rejoice together. And at the close of the chapter, Paul lists members of the body, particular people, apostles, prophets, and gifts of the body. And most of the time, Christians stop there to debate. But this morning, I don't want you to stop there. I want you to see where Paul is going. 
As he argues that the the body is a body, that Christians are a body, they are a group together, connected, functional, all necessary of each other, so closely attached that when one mourns, all should mourn, and when one is honored, all should rejoice, and that their joy and affections are so entwined that they function together, not just in action, but in affection. And Paul then in in chapter 13, as though he is trying to end our arguments over the most amazing of gifts, he says, even if you have these most amazing of gifts, if you prophesy, if you speak in tongues, he goes on to say, if you have sacrificed the greatest of things, even if you give your body to be burned, if you seek to be like Paul, he says, it is nothing without love. Nothing without love. The members of the body are to function together as the body, and his point is that the body, as it functions together in all of its various ways, what is the essential functioning of the body? It must function in love. If you have the greatest of gifts, and yet you do them not in love for the body, if you are the greatest administrator but you hate the people. The most powerful of preachers, but you hate the sheep. The most careful of set-up men, but you despise the people who sit in the chair. If you are so great with children, but you hate their parents. So great with parents, but you hate their children. He says it is of a waste. It is nothing but a clanging gong, a cymbal, a loud noise, perishing and transient. He says it all must be done in love. And I want to remind you the context of this verse. We often think think of it in marriage. Marriage is a difficult place to love, but it is also an easy place to love. It is a place where we function in much intimacy, which causes great joy and great sorrow. And it is often necessary for us to remember the truth of love in marriage. But this verse is not written to those who are married. It is written to those who are in the church. This love is not the love of marriage. It is proclaimed to be the love of the church. And this is what he says. This is how ears and eyes should love one another, how feet and hands should get along. This is how appendixes and kidneys can function together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because love never ends. This is the truth that will carry with us into eternity. How we function and what we do in the church is important now. But it is not what will will forever hold us. It is the love of Christ, which is described here and which we must live in. With one another. This list is not written for you to evaluate the love of others towards you. It is written for you to evaluate your love toward others. 
So often we see this list, and what do we do? You know, Christians don't act like this. Christians don't do this. I know Christians, they don't function like this. You know what love does? It hopes all things, and it believes all things. And God has promised that His people in the body will be sanctified. Sanctified in such a way that they will be holy and blameless in love. And to do that takes great suffering. To be members of a body takes great suffering. Not suffering like Paul. It's not a stewardship like Paul was given. Paul had great joy in his stewardship also. But Christian, your joy is so much easier to get. Your joy and the burden that God has placed on you is not the same Praise God that he has called you to be part of the body. Lastly, he says that you are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Being members of the body is not a matter of being functional because what you bring to the table, right? Remember, God has ordained the body. So when we preach that every member of the body is needed and necessary, we preach that because God says that. We're not preaching the modern pluralism, that everybody brings something to the table. If everybody could vote, if we could just have equal representation of all colors and creeds and people and hair colors and foot sizes, then we could actually come to the truth. No. You are necessary in the body because God has organized the body as He desired. If we are lacking a demographic, that does not mean we say we don't need that demographic, but we don't go to get that demographic either. We proclaim the truth to everyone God brings in our realm. And we trust Him to arrange the body. And that body is living as partakers of the promise in Christ through the Gospel. Let me just review for you the promises that He has already promised. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, that we will be holy and blameless before Him in love because that is His plan that He has promised to accomplish. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that we are redeemed and forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice and His lavish grace on us, covering our transgression. Chapter 1, 1, chapter 1 9 through 14, that we will be united in Christ as all things are restored to order under Christ. Chapter 2, 5, that His great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has now made us alive together with Christ. 2, 6 through 10, that He has secured our eternity in Christ. He's prepared a faithful stewardship for each of us in life. 2, 13, that we have been brought near to God, though we were once far. 2, 14 through 17, that we have peace with God and can have peace with each other because the hostility between God and man has been ended for the church. That He has united us as citizens with rights and members of His household with intimacy, all built on the foundation of the truth recorded for the past, in the past, by the apostles and the prophets and the completed work of Christ as the cornerstone. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And that He is building us and growing us together for Him to be glorified and for us to dwell with Him forever. And He is doing that now by His Spirit. Christian, that is true for the universal church. That is true for all Christians. And Faith Bible Menifee, if that is true for all, it is true for you. 
If he is doing that for his body, and that is his promise, it means that each one of you, if you are part of this body, maybe today for the first time, you have a function in this body. And you are called to function together in love. And you are called to dwell on what love is, that you might manifest it not just towards your spouse, but towards his, the bride, Christ. You have been given a stewardship also. Not like Paul, but like Paul. For the good of his body. For his name to be proclaimed and his people. Because his people are heirs, they are members of the body, and they are partakers of the promise. I want to encourage you, live as an heir for eternity. Live as a member in function as his body. And live because you are now a partaker of the promises that are forever. Let's pray that God would be so faithful to do so. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Father, that you have not just started a work in us, but from the beginning of time, in your creation of Adam and Eve, you had a plan and a purpose. You were not confused when Eve sinned. You were not confused when Cain killed Abel. You were not confused when Noah built the ark, and you were not confused when he decided to get drunk and fall. You were not confused when David was a young man after your heart, and you were not confused when he was an old man committing murder and adultery. You were not confused when your people were faithful, and you were not confused when they were suffering in unfaithfulness. You were not confused when Christ was born, and you were not confused when he was crucified by the hands of the Romans and the Jews. You were purposed and planned in all things. We thank you, Father for your care and your affection for us. We thank you that you do not glorify us, but you glorify yourself because you are worthy to be praised. I pray you would help us to live, to praise you and glorify you now as you prepare us to forever praise and glorify you in eternity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.